When it comes to thinking about DEI or diversity, equity and inclusion, I have to admit that I never really thought about it in relation to the space industry. I guess it's just something that seems so out of this world, excuse the pun, and far removed from what I'm familiar with. But of course, it too struggles with issues commonly seen in other tech-related environments, such as the lack of women in senior positions, struggles with the pipeline of people from underrepresented groups, and a lack of diversity in leadership and thought. I scratch the surface of some of these issues in the context of the space industry with this episode's guest. Vikram has a background in aerospace engineering and currently focuses on building Web3 tooling for space ecosystems. He shares with me his experiences growing up as a fifth culture kid, how his experiences led him to enter the space industry, and the real-life implications of the industry's lack of diversity. So we all know about third culture kids but you often refer to yourself as like a fifth culture kid, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you want to explain why that is and how that came up? So fifth culture is kind of like, um, in my case, I was raised in four different cultures and the fifth is a, a mishmash of all those four. And so what are those cultures that you grew up in? Ethnically South Asian. So in India, I was, that's where I was born. But I grew up in Dubai, Napier in New Zealand, and then Sydney in Australia. What was it like growing up or spending so much time in Dubai? Because we all know what it looks like on the outside, but what, yeah. was, what was it actually to live there and grow up there? Dubai was very different. It was, I guess, the 90s. Uh, back then and before, there weren't a lot of people as there are now, like in terms of I guess, cultures. Uh, It was mostly people from the US and the UK and Western Europe and mostly white guys. And they were really somehow involved in the oil business and oil trade. Yeah, so that's generally the demographic you saw outside of the local Arab population. It was not like what it is today at all. Like, I think there was only one skyscraper from what I remember. And uh, we left like just when they... So I don't know if it's called the Burj Khalifa. Oh, maybe not. Uh, it's called. It's like this this hotel that looks like a sail. That was the first sort of like popular landmark that was recognized in Dubai. It sounds like you were leaving right on the verge of Dubai's growth. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then from Dubai, you also went. You, you went back to India, right? Yeah. So lived in Bangalore for about three years. And what was that? change like going from Dubai to India? It was very different. I mean, you kind of felt like there was some familiarity um, because we did go now and then back and forth, like during the holidays to India. So there was that kind of familiarity. But um, now that we were like living there, it was also a little different because you were treated a little bit, at least as a kid, you were kind of treated a little different because I didn't have like typical I guess, Indian accent. So that kind of makes you stand out. There's hard studying. Generally, like, school in South Asia is very different to school in, like, New Zealand and Australia. So if we just look at your, like, earlier years, what was the cultural adaptation like for you? Was Dubai and India, they seem quite, like, different countries? Was it difficult adapting culturally i think maybe less so compared to adapting culturally coming to new zealand i also think i was 
a bit too young to sort of like experience that uh, difference in culture, like between Dubai and Bangalore. Also, like the school that we were in Dubai, there were quite a few South Asians there. There were some international. Um, so in a way, we also like educated. I think that particular school was sort of like uh, educated in a, they had a like South Asian sort of education system. So you went from Dubai to India and then you came to New Zealand. Is that right? Yeah, so that was a bit more of a culture shock. I didn't realize it was until like my dad's coworker who was Kiwi Chinese and he he tried he he helped us quite a bit. Like he kind of understood that, I think. So this was in Napier. So he kind of understood that sort of transitioning from uh like you know an asian culture coming to a more uh western culture because i remember like when i i met him like after i guess after i'd finished high school i'd met him once again and he said like how i changed and um how like when he first met me i was like very guarded very quiet i'd say like pretty much Every day at school, I would be trying to sort of fit in. I think I struggled with trying to be like everyone. So I guess that was the first sort of attempt to be Kiwi. Like looking back now, when I was younger, I always tried to become like others in society. And it was there also in, you know, going going back to Bangalore, it was also there um, I was trying to be part of society, trying to be like, you know, the other Indian kids in school, uh, get into the same things that they were into in New Zealand. Like in Napier, it was the same thing, like getting into cricket, there was soccer, I got into musicals. Yeah, also planetarium. So we had a planetarium. I think it was one of three in New Zealand. So I helped out over there as well. Yeah, so I guess the planetarium sort of was what I identified myself. Uh, it's uh, actually one of the reasons why I wanted to do astrophysics, and then eventually I did, you know, space engineering. So, and I can tell you one place that I really fit in that I felt like was me was when I went to university. I used to live at a dorm called International House or I House, and. Um, we were there for the first time in my life, which I wish I had earlier. Now that I look back, which I wish I had like as a kid, is I felt home at home because over there, seventy percent of people were not from Australia, and you've always found people like me over there. That to me, I felt like I fit in because whenever you strike up the conversation with them, the first thing they would never ask is where you're from. They would be more interested in like who you are, like what are your interests. And that to me was very different because every time uh, it, it was always the question of like where you're from or like where you originally from or, you know, some, questions like that. Yeah, that, that whole like where are you from question. I know a lot of people are like, well, how do you expect to be asked then kind of attitude? And for me personally, it's more like, how about get to know the person first and let them bring up their background? Um, and if it comes up, it comes up. If it doesn't, you don't really need to ask. 
Yeah, I agree. Like, I think like the best way to, if you really want to strike up a conversation with anyone, uh, and this has nothing to do with someone who is a third culture person, is you just ask them what your interests are, and your interests have generally have no alignment to your identity. Well, they are part of your, they're an attribute of your identity, obviously, but generally that aspect of that attribute has nothing to do with where you're from. So you mentioned earlier about the whole like fifth culture kid thing. How do you think all of these places have contributed to how you see your own like personal and cultural identity now? Like what is that fifth culture to you? Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I think like now that I look back, it's also kind of tied to how I chose my career. I always was interested in like things like cosmology and astrophysics, more like cosmology. And that's probably because for me, this idea of national identity that never made sense. So even though like I am a New Zealand sort of citizen now, I don't know if I would say identify myself as, you know, Kiwi because I have tried it at high school. <laughs> so it didn't quite uh, work out. yeah, it didn't quite work out. So I generally look at myself as someone who is uh, from these sort of four different cultures and it kind of relates to my career part like it's ma- mainly the reason why I, you know went into space industry like because i thought that you know space meant like you know you didn't care about your national borders and it was something in the lines of what you would see in things like star trek where it was more about you know you your individual identity uh was a representation of being a human being or, you know, a citizen of the planet. And it didn't really matter as much as your national boundary because your culture is generally older than your national, than your country. Is this a place that you've come at through your experiences and over time? Or when did you start to sort of understand your identity in this sense? Personally, after my experience, like living in... uh, you know, like in Sydney, an international house, uh, going through the kinds of people that I met. And then professionally as well, like how um, I guess the space industry is very different to what I thought it would be. And it really does matter on your national identity more than, you know, anything else. Um, Interesting. Sorry, can you can I ask you more about that? What do you mean by that? Um, so the space industry is quite heavily regulated. There's like a bunch of like... Um, treaties like MCTR and ITAR and all these things, at least in the West. And so it really is important that where you are born map is more important than, uh, yeah, your citizenship as well. It can be different, like depending on where you are, like in the US, it's where you're born rather than citizenship. Based on that, you can, it's easy for you to work or not um, in the industry. Uh, And that's, well, because space, when you talk about space, you're talking about it. Uh, you're essentially, whatever you do with space, you're doing with something called launch vehicles or rockets. And you're essentially a launch vehicle is an intercontinental ballistic missile. So, and anything you could do, once you have an ICBM, you can do pretty much anything. So that's why national identity matters because of the geopolitical. So geopolitics plays a lot in the space industry, unfortunately. So... Me as a kid who's experienced all these cultures and who came into the space industry thinking, oh, it's going to be like Star Trek. Um, it was very different. 
So do you have any thoughts or or advice on how to navigate that area of in-betweenness for other multi multiple culture kids or their kids? Yeah. Um, so I guess like if I were going back now, so if you're like a kid that's generally growing up in more than two countries um, or more than one country, I would try and be more proactive to find people like you try and be or try and find groups that encourage you know like generally the word international is used quite a bit so you can always try that uh yeah it is i guess i'm I'm not sure but like i feel like younger generations these days are a little bit more in tune with these kinds of issues but like when i was growing up probably similar to you i felt like i always had to like fit in and I only wanted to surround myself with people who didn't look like me (laughs) because that was the majority of the population at the time and just somehow like helping your kids since we are talking in the context of children just helping them understand that it's okay and like this is a really special unique identity and space that you hold and you don't need to like change yourself or like try to fit in with people who don't appreciate you or don't understand you because there are there are people out there who do understand where you're coming from and have shared experiences and there is such a difference between being around a group of people who don't understand your experiences and not understanding like how your parents act or your culture and traditions versus a group where you can just say things or do things without needing to explain any of it and like people yeah. just know. Yeah. Yeah. Cause um, I think I heard your interview and your dad is technically a third culture kid cause he grew up in. Yeah. So how did, did he sort of like help you out in like uh, navigating not really. You, no? <laughs> <laughs> no, because these are not conversations that I even started having until recently. Yeah. When, you know, I, I started to do more like self-reflection and all that kind of stuff. And it's definitely not something that I feel like my parents had time to yeah. even reflect on. Like, I think for like my parents' generation, it was just about like surviving and like trying to do the very best they could to set their kids up for a successful future. So like things like identity and all this sort of stuff, it's probably not even important to them, I guess. Just too busy trying to survive. (laughs) No, (laughs) but I'm sure like they had their own experiences, but just, I feel like different generation, different priorities. A lot of stuff is probably very traumatic for them. Yeah. I guess like you could always talk about mental health. So um because because you tend to be alone um as a third culture kid everyone's different uh, not everyone's introverted not everyone's extroverted everyone's in between the two uh different spectrums and um i think trying to navigate the mental health around that is important like so if you're introverted you like writing or drawing like i was very much into art until I started my engineering degree, <laughs> which is so ironic because engineering is design, but there was not a single art class anyway. But like, um, but yeah, no, I was very into art. I, I am getting back into it now. So that was kind of like my way out of 
I guess, loneliness, I guess. And it's something I did, I like doing alone. Mental health wasn't really a topic back then, but like now it is a thing. And uh, I think it's important to uh, recognize that. Yeah, I'm hoping as time goes on, it becomes less lonely for people, right? Like hopefully. Yeah, so you think like with the internet, it sort of, I mean, because now they're communication. I mean, communication is a lot easier now. And yeah, I mean, you can create a community like that's borderless. And it, like borderless communities are perfect for third culture kids because you're always moving. You're always like moving around. You're always, yeah. I don't know about you, but like as I grow older, like I, I kind of miss the travel. So I kind of, I try and focus and see if like I can incorporate that into my sort of career. Speaking of your career, I, yeah, I just find it fascinating the point you made earlier about how like you became interested in space because it seemed borderless, but then you got into space and realized it was actually full of politics. What what was that realization like for you? Was it disappointing or? Um, so I know I still managed to do like still managed to work. Um, I, I worked in the space industry about six years, but it always felt like your identity sometimes, you know, I mean, there's, I mean, that's the least of issues, actually. I mean, there's a lot of like racism and misogyny and everything. There's a whole lot of things, but um, the space industry really started out of, you know, out of war. Right. So it started in the fifties because of the Soviet Union and the U.S. and the Cold War. So that sort of subculture and the multiple subcultures that were developed during that time, over time, a subculture eventually becomes a culture and becomes mainstream. And that sort of subculture of the Cold War mentality still exists today. And a lot of the, a lot of the treaties that were signed back then are what determines a lot of um, a lot of the things that businesses do, whether whether it's a business or whether it's like a civilian space agency or any anyone. It, those treaties that were signed back in the fifties and sixties, you s- still apply today. Obviously, politics changes, governments change. Like one day, a government can be a democracy; it can be an authoritarian. When you're in the space industry, where those kind of things actually those the, the treaties that were once set at a particular point of time don't really apply anymore and those kind of things need to be accounted for um so it's yeah it's very it's very i guess it's kind of meta i guess in a way can you tell me more about these racism and misogyny issues i mean i can, i can guess but yeah uh so i guess like it depends where you are it's mostly i mean the space industry is mostly old white guys um, and most of these guys were back were around during the cold war. So, yeah, I mean, you, their sort of culture and their perception of what it was back in the day is still sort of exists. It's, it's very typical to pretty much any other industry, you know, like you have in Hollywood, you had it in Silicon Valley. It's the same thing. Uh, But yeah, it's no different to any of the others. It's just, uh, and the space industry is less looked upon because um, space as a culture is not as pervasive as, you know, technology is in general, like like your Google and your Facebook and stuff. And generally when you refer to space 
if you ask the common lay person, it's always about Elon Musk and something related to that. But it's, you know, it's a lot more broad than that. So, yeah. Um, So how does that lack of diversity impact the work that people do in the space industry? Uh, Lack of diversity means lack of perspectives, right? So one of the big problems, in fact, that I'm working on through my company is uh, the space debris problem, which is so we have a lot of like debris dating back to the 1950s still up there. We live in a society that is highly dependent on satellites. And that's everything from location-based services, like if you're an Uber user or Airbnb or you know Google Maps or Apple Maps, all those are location-based services. Not only location-based services, communications, and yeah, remote sensing, which is a fancy term for saying that we just look at you know the earth so all the stuff that's coming out of ukraine and the conflict over there conflicts in syria you can see all that from space because of satellites Um, and then the most important thing is climate science right Uh, climate change is the biggest topic that everyone likes to talk about but very few actually act on it so that a lot of the data that comes from climate science comes from from satellites so when you have all these you have a, a lot of space junk in in like in your orbits that are being shared by these satellites that's a big problem because uh you have minimal gravity it's not zero gravity it's microgravity so there is some gravity but what happens is if you have say like an object that bumps into another object that creates a cascading or snowballing effect which they call kessler syndrome um, and that eventually creates more debris pattern. And this, again, is tied to climate change. The more carbon there is in your atmosphere, the less drag there is. And as such, you increase the snowballing effect because you need you need more oxygen in your upper atmosphere than carbon because oxygen helps you burn up a lot of that stuff. If you have more carbon in it, you're essentially creating an ice skating ring for your satellites and debris over there. So it worsens the problem of space debris so that's kind of like the real sort of problem and if you don't have multiple perspectives uh, if you don't have diverse perspectives on it then you're not going to solve problems like that and it's the same with climate change it's the same with the plastic pollution problem so having like diverse perspectives do help in tackling those kind of issues i have many questions so Number one, how did the debris get up there? Number two, how do we clean up the debris, or do we not know that um, anymore? So, yeah, so debris got up there since the 50s. Like, uh, it's just a bunch of satellites that the U.S. and former USSR have been deploying. But during the 50s and 60s, it was mostly like a lot of defense work uh, on both sides. So it was mostly a lot of military and satellite programs to, you know, spy and uh, things like that. Uh, there was also a small community that was starting to do remote sensing for environmental work, like like climate sciences and stuff. But majority of that was really uh, rocket, like generally second stage or the third stage of a rocket that are uh, there are still there. And you can't really burn those. I mean, you can burn those stages if you have actively designed those stages to re-enter the atmosphere. But back then, that knowledge wasn't really, you know, a thing. So a lot of that is what's 
got up there. Nowadays, when people design, it's kind of implicit that, I mean, there are no laws, unfortunately, for people to do that. And even if there were laws, you can't really, you know, you can't enforce them. It's very hard to enforce because over 100 kilometers, it's international waters. So no one can actually enforce you above 100 kilometers. But at least most people are, at least from from the perspective of scientists who work on these, they are aware of it. And they generally try and design, like whether it's a satellite or a even a launch vehicle, they try and design it so that there is, once the mission life is over, there is re-entry and it's completely burned up. So it's not sticking around. So that sort of culture of sustainability is starting to come up. Like it's um, like NASA, for example, has a requirement that if you're ever working with NASA on anything, you should have a debris mitigation plan. You should have like a burn up and re-entry plan uh, for your satellite. Yeah. So that was like, I don't know if I answered your questions. (laughs) Yeah. And then there's active removal as well. So you have specific companies that are uh, actively removing it. I don't know much about that aspect, but yeah, some, I think some concepts are using a harpoon uh, I remember working on something where we use like a tether, like, so it's like a yo-yo and you deploy, it's attached to your satellite. They actually send a satellite to capture it and then they drag it down. There are quite a few companies doing that now and a lot of startups trying to do that kind of stuff. Interesting. Yeah. And so the lack of diversity thing, is that because people see it as an option because I don't see people like them or is it access to education or what, what, what are the barriers there? So I guess lack of diversity is, it depends where you are. So if you're in the West, it's mostly what, uh, you know, all white men. Um, and from that perspective, uh, yeah, there's less people in the sector that are from other backgrounds. There's always the issue of pipeline, the pipeline problem, uh, when it comes to women in tech, there needs to be more funding for women to go into that. There's also the culture, like, yeah, this is the other thing. Like, I prefer when I'm working in tech, I prefer working with people who, um, who aren't part of the mainstream, so to say. Because one thing I notice is like when when you're working in in a, in a a certain demographic, like the culture is different. Like when you're like in, when you're working in a company with mostly white guys, (laughs) it can be a challenge. Like, especially if a woman, I guess it would be very much of a challenge. There are going to be instances where you're not going to be just talking about the data. You're just not going to be talking about, you know, the methodology of what you're doing, whether it's a test or whatever. And those things do come into play that sort of culture. So your cultural aspects, your cultural backgrounds do come into play. And I guess also your preconceived biases and assumptions too. But um, I guess if you're, say, Indian, for example, and you're working in the Indian space industry, then, I mean, the majority of them are Indians. Um, So over there, diversity is different. Over there, diversity would be having more women, uh, more of different cultural backgrounds within India, because India is quite diverse in itself from a cultural aspect. Very fascinating. I'm sure there's so much that we could talk about in terms of like the space and your work aspect. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing a bit about your experiences and a bit about your work. And yeah, really appreciate your time. Cool. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you, as always, for listening. I hope this episode gave you some different perspectives or taught you something you didn't know before. I, for sure, learnt a lot about the space industry, even if it was just scratching the surface. Remember, if you're enjoying this show, please rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't done so already, and follow along on Instagram. Just search for Not Your Token Minority Podcast. Mm-hmm.